Welcome to One Market, keeping the Laurier-Brantford community connected. I'm Bruce Gillespie. This week, we are delighted to share a conversation with Giller Prize-winning author Suvankam Tamavongsa, who teaches creative writing here at Laurier-Brantford. Then, we hear about some of the challenges researchers have faced because of the pandemic and check in with two student researchers who produced a report about racism on campus. All that and more coming up on this episode of One Market. Our first guest is Suvankam Tamavangsa, who was awarded the Scotiabank Giller Prize on November 10th for her collection of short stories, How to Pronounce Knife, published by McClelland and Stewart. Suvankam also teaches creative writing for the English program here at Laurie Brantford, and she kindly made some time for us during a blitz of national media attention just a couple of days after her win was announced. Here's our conversation. Hi, Suvankam, and thanks for joining us today on One Market. Hi, Bruce. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Well, anytime we can get a Giller Prize winner on our show, we are thrilled. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anytime that I could talk to someone because they're interested in what I've written is a thrill for me. So... It was so much fun to watch the Giller ceremony this year because it was obviously, like everything else today, so different than usual. The Giller ceremony is usually very red carpet, very sort of glitzy. And this year people were at home watching live videos and it was, it was, it was really charming. Like I thought the effect was actually really nice. It was really fun to watch you sort of in your kitchen waiting to hear the results and then running down your hallway to the front door to actually accept the prize. Mm. I think the only thing I missed about the traditional ceremony it was like a red carpet shot of your dress because it looked beautiful. <laughs> well, um, actually, they had a virtual red carpet on their blog. So they before the broadcast, they were we were asked to take photos of ourselves as we would have been dressed on the red carpet. And then so they did that on their blog. I had sent three photos in so you can see the dress there. Oh, good. Yeah, it's a vintage dress. It was gorgeous looking, so I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear that. I will definitely go and take a look. <laughs> what was it like? I mean, what was it like to win an award when you're sitting at home in your kitchen with your friends? Like, what was what was the night like? Well, I am a person who likes to be alone, and in fact, um, in the between the pages interview, which happens a week before the ceremony, we had been asked how we were going to celebrate that night, and I had said. Well, I want to be alone. You know, um, a person can be a family by themselves. A person can be loved by themselves. You know, some of the most difficult and meaningful moments, you celebrate them by yourself. And uh, I just didn't see a reason as to why um, I needed to be around other people. I, I'm very happy just to celebrate by myself um, and, and to keep things low key. You know, in a writer's life, it is not glamorous. <laughs> you know, the, the rejection, the years of rejection letters, the hope for reviews. I mean, what the Giller Prize did is I want people to see that That's not something that happens every day. It's not something that happens um, in a writer's lifetime. Prizes are not an automatic, even for good books. Um, On a different night, on a different day, 
it might have been someone else's name that was called that night. And, you know, I would have been perfectly fine with it. Um, but it happened to be mine. And, you know, uh, there's what you hope, what you wish and what you want. And often in life, they never arrive at the same time. And that night, it just so happened that it did. And I was just kind of a little shocked and uh, just trying to keep it together. I, I assume it probably does take a little time to sort of process everything, especially when it's happening in this weird virtual <laughs> kind of way. <laughs> I was really thrilled to see that your book won because I loved it. Um, and also because although short story collections sometimes do win the Gillard, that's not sort of the usual course of events. So I thought that was even more exciting. Of course, you know, the the short story is, is um, often thought to be less because it's small. Um, but my opinion on that is that a short story can give you any, everything that a novel can, but it doesn't take up your time in that way. Um, I don't view it as a thing that's less than a novel. I think it's it's just as powerful. And this is what I love about your short stories is that they feel so so fully formed. And even if you're reading about a character for you know twenty or thirty pages, your characters feel like completely real people, and you can sort of imagine the entire lives they've had because of the writing. And the writing is gorgeous, but it's so perfectly honed. There's no extra word. There's no extra phrase. And, and, and to me, that sort of is the mark of a good poet, which, of course, you've written four poetry books before this one. So I just the language is so beautiful. But it did make me wonder, as someone who writes neither poetry nor short stories, when you set out to write something, do you sort of, do you think of the medium first? Or do you sort of start with a poem and realize you want more space for it or you start with a short story and realize you want to hone it down to something shorter and more poem-like? How does that work? I I know that maybe some listeners would probably want something profound, but to be honest, I just do what I want. <laughs> if I want it to be a poem, it's going to be a poem. If I want it to be a short story, it's not, I mean, to me, I don't find that choice to be all that complicated. It's just whatever I want to do. Um, but the care, certainly, you're right. Um, there's, I think it has to do with style. You know, there's, anybody can write. Anybody can put words together and express something, even a sentence like, I'm sad, um, that, you know, that is writing. It's communicating something. But to write it in a way such that the reader feels that sentence is something entirely different. Um, one of the lovely things I've been able to see is that um, readers' responses, like, for example, in the short story, uh, Picking Worms, uh, a lot of people haven't picked worms before or worked in that kind of job. But when they read it, they weep as if their whole life they've picked worms and they've been passed up for this position that they coveted. Um, there are readers who have never in a single day had a taste of fermented fish sauce, which is, um, you know, something very common to Laotian food. And they weep at the thought of never having it again, even though they have no idea what that is. 
um, but they miss it and they're nostalgic. And I think it's because it's the language. They forget who they are, where they are, and they are so absorbed and pulled into the story that they forget that what I've written is made up, it's fiction. And for me, that is the real joy when people want to so desperately to know um, is it real because mm-hmm. it feels so real to them and for me I don't want to take away that magic for them because I've made this thing w- whether or not it's the truth or comes from a real life experience for me the real joy is that they believe it um, you know when we see a beautiful sunrise we don't ask why it shines we just enjoy it right <laughs> Yeah, that, that's so true. And I think the amount of work you put into it certainly comes out because, again, it's the, the end result is so moving and affecting, but just so beautifully polished to my mind. It's, um, it is writing that takes a big risk because it is the sentences are very clear and simple. And there's an ease to the language. And so, but but what I do is that I conceal how technical I am. And a lot of times the ease and the simplicity is taken for being simple. Um, people understand the story and, you know, there's nothing that feels pyrotechnic or um, too dramatic or... It doesn't show off its skill. And as a writer, you are working very technically, but you run the risk of a reader not understanding that that ease and simplicity that you've made is really difficult to to create. Absolutely. I um, Some of what I teach is, is literary journalism, literary nonfiction. So I always have this discussion with students that, you know, what, what may look like an effortless very easy kind of writing is, is as you say, exactly, often not. It, it takes a lot of right. time and effort and, and thinking to actually hone it down to something something so spare that can still be so emotive and affecting. I think that you have to make people feel. I mean, I we oftentimes the event itself is so dramatic, but you can't, I don't think a writer should lean on an event. They actually have to write and make the person feel the event. For example, you know, I talk, I mean, I mean, I talk all the time about how, or um, my parents built a raft made of bamboo to get to a refugee camp. You know, that's a fact. But how do I get a reader or a listener or someone's attention and make them feel how difficult that is? And um, just just how do you give that moment for a re- to a reader to make them understand and feel that moment? And that is my project to get a reader to feel what I write. We are so lucky at Laurie Brantford because... Clearly, you're so thoughtful about this and have so much great experience and you're able to share with our students because you're teaching some of our creative writing classes. Have you been able to see your students since you won the award? No, I haven't, but they've been sending me emails congratulating me. Um, They are really amazing students. Um, What I love about them is that 
there. You know, I thought, you know, being online that students would perhaps just record it and watch, uh, you know, watch the class in their own time. I have 31 students. And when the class begins at seven o'clock, 31 students are there. And three hours later, 31 students are still there. And in fact, some of them continue their own you know, little workshop outside of class. And that just amazes me that there's such a hunger for to share, to write, um, and to continue. And they certainly inspire me. Um, I've been, yeah, I've just been very, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't tell my students what to do. Um, I, and I tell them this is the one class where, you know, you're the writer. We look at what you write and there's no expert but you. Um, you're never wrong unless you're offensive, you know, racist. Then, but most, um, but the writing is is what we look at. This class does not run if you don't bring anything to share. But, you know, these students, uh, they show up and they stay there. And I think, that's a mark of really terrific writers. Absolutely. And and I would say also probably a mark of a, of a really dedicated teacher as well, especially if you can get them that committed from 7 till 10 p.m. at night. I mean, that's... I mean, I've asked them, you know, because I've had to go to the washroom during right. these three hours and we don't take breaks. Um, you know, I, I had asked them, um, should we take a break? Because they are so attentive and um, they, they said, oh, no, that's okay. Um, and, uh, and um, but, you know, three hours is a long time. And so... I do now take ask them to take a 10 minute break. It's funny. They don't ask me, you know, like in a classroom setting, often students ask you for a break um, Mm -hmm. and these students don't ask for a break. And I've also got them at the stage in their writing where they're not self-conscious, you know, they Mm -hmm. don't, they're not at the stage where they're like, is this good? And they don't pick on themselves. I think, I think, I mean, just to watch their joy, um, you know, I don't, I don't, as a teacher or just as an observer, I don't want to take away that joy that they have. That's something that a writer carries throughout their life and it's the thing that sustains them. That's a lovely way to think about it. So welcome, congratulations once again, and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. If you would also like to see some photos of Suvalkam's gorgeous vintage dress, we have a link on our website. Our next guest is Matthew Wyman McCarthy, Laurie Brantford's research facilitator. Here, he gives us an overview of how the funding landscape for researchers has changed during the course of the pandemic. So I think the natural first place to start is for you to explain what your job is. Clearly, professors and instructors who work with you know what your job is, but I feel like your job title is is sort of vague enough that maybe staff and students might not know what you do. Yeah, no, that's that, that's a fair question. I have to explain to my family what I do. The title's so vague. So it's... Uh, oh, so you've got experience. That's great. I, <laughs> I do. It's a very fair question. Uh, so I'm a, uh, a research facilitator with the Office of Research Services on the Brantford campus. 
And I, I do a number of different things to support faculty members in conducting research. Uh, the most significant, or at least what uh, takes up most of my time, is helping them get funding for their research. Uh, not all research projects require money, uh, but many of them do to, uh, to go overseas, to look at archives, to conduct interviews, uh, to attend conferences, um, and in particular to hire students as, as research assistants to collect and analyze data. And so in, in Canada, the federal government uh, in particular provides a lot of funding for research, but as you and uh, a number of faculty members know, it's a very competitive application process. And these applications tend to be quite long and complex. And so a lot of my job involves helping faculty take their, their research ideas and translating them or framing them away uh, in a way that will really resonate with funding bodies. And so that means brainstorming ideas and going back and forth. Uh, I do a lot of editing and giving feedback. Sometimes they write sections of applications, uh, but it's all focused on helping research, uh, researchers get the, the resources and the funds they need to carry out their projects. Uh, and it's been really fun listening to this podcast uh, because a number of those projects have, have come up in previous episodes. So it's been kind of cool. When it's it's a really important job, and again, I, I I think sometimes people must think, oh, you're the research grant guy. He writes, you know, he, he writes applications for lazy profs, but it's not that at all. Matt always makes us do our own work. But I think for, um, for folks who haven't gone through the process yet, as as you've mentioned, the applications are so laborious, and even applications for very similar kinds of grants from the same body can be so different that it's really helpful to have someone with your expertise to sort of look at these from from sort of a remove and say, this is what this question actually means. This is the best way to answer it. Do you have more information about this and less about that? It is, it's really, it's a lot of editing expertise and understanding what that audience of, of, of funding jurors wants to see. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. Um, sometimes I think these things are so long and complex um, just because when you have such a high bar, it means um, the people applying for these really uh, have to put a lot of blood and sweat into them. Um, that way you're not, you know, these funding bodies don't get tens of thousands of applicants. They, they only get thousands of applicants. Uh, it, it's kind of like, you know, a professor who on the syllabus, uh, when they go through it on the first day, will highlight all the really hard assignments uh, in, in hopes that students might drop the class. Not that that would ever happen at Laurier Brantford. Uh, <laughs> no, but, but I, it, I've it, never done that. <laughs> no, no, exactly. But it's been known to happen <laughs> elsewhere. Um, I, I think one of the, the things that you hit on um, it's it. Everyone benefits from talking out their ideas with someone. Um, when I when I taught university in a previous life, uh, one of the things I'd, I'd always ask my students to do, I'd say, talk to your housemate, talk to your sibling, talk to your parents. Say, here's my idea, and have them ask questions. Well, why is that important? Well, you know, what do you think you'll find? And sometimes just by talking it out and articulating it aloud. Um, that, that leads to a lot of interesting, diverse thoughts that uh, someone wouldn't have just writing it down on paper. And so the writing grants, much like writing essays, much like any type of writing, um, really benefits from being a collaborative process. It must be really interesting to be in your chair and actually get to talk with the broad range of researchers at our campus that you do and hear about all sorts of really different, unique projects from, from in many cases, their, their earliest stages. Yeah, no, that's definitely the coolest thing about the job. Um, you know, in the morning, you could be talking about, um, you know, a, a project on the higher education system in Ghana. 
And then in the afternoon, it's on, um, you know, community-based research. How do we help individuals experiencing homelessness in Brantford, for instance? Um, and so no, no two days are, are ever alike. And it's that, uh, that breadth and diversity of topics that, uh, that really excites me. So how has your work changed since the pandemic? Yeah, um, the the sh- the short answer is at the moment not all that much. Um, the the volume of applications is about the same as it is in a typical year. Interesting. Uh, yeah, no, I, I was kind of surprised at that. Um, I mean, for some people, pivoting to online teaching, um, added family responsibilities at home, and things like that have uh, have taken away time that would otherwise be devoted for uh, to research. Uh, for other people who aren't able to go overseas to do research or uh, who have, uh, I guess, who have experienced barriers in conducting in-person research due to COVID, uh, now is kind of the ideal time to think about what the, what the next project is and how do I get funding for it. Um, and so on the whole, it's been, a bit of a, it's been a bit of a wash. And the statistics we have Canada-wide um, that's that's been about true for most researchers in the social science and the humanities. Fascinating. I, I would never have guessed that. But also because I've seen, or I feel like I've seen, um, some reporting about how, because women are bearing a lot of the burden of the pandemic, of, of people being at home all the time and working and children at home, um, as sort of, of who, because women end up being primary caregivers in many cases, that their applications would have been down. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I uh, that's kind of what I thought <laughs> initially as well. But it, um, it it turns out, I think after the first few months of the pandemic, um, once people kind of settled into a new normal, um, things have things have leveled off a bit. But uh, yeah, no, I was I was surprised at that at that as well. I presume we've seen lots of changes in terms of. Um, how granting bodies are actually working with folks who have existing research grants in terms of providing extensions to 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 grants that otherwise would have ended probably sometime this year. Yeah, so so most uh, most funding bodies recognize you know there have been severe interruptions, so they'll you know if you received uh, however much funding for a three year project, they say well we'll give you an extra year or so, um, and probably the you know if we think of the past six months how how the funding landscape has has changed. Uh, may, I, this is me taking your question a bit of a direct, a different direction, Bruce. <laughs> um, the uh, you know the initial focus right when the pandemic hit, um, a lot of funding bodies were making money available for biomedical research. Um, you know to understand the science of this virus, how it gets transmitted, how we can mitigate it, um, taking first steps towards developing a vaccine. Um, which didn't um, didn't affect many people on the Brantford campus because, as you know, we don't do much biomedical research. Um, as the pandemic continued into the summer, though, uh, we started seeing um, opportunities for uh, for projects that really looked at the social impacts of COVID, and that's where a lot of Brantford-based researchers got involved. Um, so I worked on applications on how has COVID changed how police do their job. Um, how has COVID changed how victims of domestic violence are supported? Uh, how can these individuals get the resources and supports they need in an environment where service delivery is remote? Um, and I certainly think over the next few years, as the pandemic recedes, uh, there'll be more and more projects assessing how different organizations and sectors did in responding to the pandemic 
um, and then possibly helping them make plans to deal with future pandemics. And so, you know, in a way, in the world of research, the, the pandemic and its impacts, that's, that's kind of just getting started, I think. That's so interesting to think about sort of the, the, the future the future footprint or, or trail of, of where all this leads. But you're right. I mean, um, and I remember seeing through through emails um, from the Office of Research Services that, that that shift from you know those immediate biomedical needs to more so the long term impact. And I was actually surprised, um, maybe unfairly, about how quickly some of these funding bodies were actually able to um, get some of these funds available to people, I guess. I mean, it, it seemed like a really quick turnaround. They seemed very, very responsive. Yeah, no, I, I think on the whole, that's that's right. I mean, part of it in, in Canada, it helps that we, much of the funding comes from the federal government. Um, and so, um, you know, bureaucracies can be slow, but once a decision is made that we want to pivot in a certain way, um, it, it can come, um, you know, it can be done pretty, pretty quickly. I'd say um, it, it was in June that we started seeing the first applications for um, kind of uh, research on the social impacts of COVID that started going in, and that continued throughout throughout the summer. Hmm. So interesting, and again, you must have a great sort of spot to a great vantage point from which to see all of these trends emerge in in, in where research is going and how it's changing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I, I kind of have a pulse on a whole bunch of different things. So it's definitely the bird's eye view. That's great. Matt, thank you so much for telling us about this today. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. Uh, thanks for having me and thank you for doing this podcast. I know a lot of people really enjoy it. Our final guests are alumni Paige Grant and Aska Chowdhury. Today, Paige is a Master of Arts student in the Department of Social Justice Education at the University of Toronto, who works as a freelance digital artist and occasional teacher. Aska is a full-time teacher with the Peel District School Board, as well as being a Master of Education candidate in U of T's Department of Social Justice Education. Before that, they were undergraduates at Laurier Brantford, and during their time here, they were part of a team of student researchers who completed a study about racism at Laurier. The Being Raced report provided a snapshot of the experience of Black, Indigenous, and people of color on campus, and has gone on to become a foundational part of the work that people are doing to make Laurier a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive place today. To start, I asked Paige about the origins of the project. Aska, myself, and Joey were roommates at uh, Wolford Laurier University, and we are all um, racialized individuals who were going through our unique experiences of racism. And at the end of the day, a lot of those experiences were, um, uh, things that we had to disclose with each other because there's no formal reporting process at, uh, at Laurier or most institutions when racial violence happens to you. So, um, it really, just came to us talking to each other, disclosing with each other, giving each other advice about what's happening. Um, so that's kind of how it started. Um, and we went to uh, the the DEO, which is the EDI. Um, I don't know the acronym of EDIs, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion, I think. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so we went to um, the EDI uh 
for help. And uh, there was different situations where they were able um, to come into classrooms to um, to have conversations about um, racial violence that was happening. Um, and then um, we were approached uh, as a collective to um, pursue this report, the Being Race Report, um, to collect experiences of people of color, to have conversations. Um, and yeah, I don't know, Aska. Yeah, um, the program that we were in, Concurrent Education, was a predominantly white program. Um, and the three of us were usually the only people of color um, in the classrooms that we were in. Uh, so a lot of the work that related to equity fell on us um, and it was super painful and tiring to do it by ourselves. Uh, with that said, we did work alongside Dr. Vanessa Oliver, Dr. Laura May Lindo, Lauren Burroughs, and our peer, Kate Harvey. Um, each of them in their own way helped us uh, with the Being Raised report. Um, and although this work was tiring and super draining, it was fun because we did it together. Uh, a lot of the solace that we found with this type of work um, was because of the fact that Paige, Joey, and I um, did it together and it was very therapeutic for us in that sense. It was definitely something that I would not want to repeat uh, considering how draining it was, but I'm very happy that we did get the chance to do it together. Well, and it's a really, it's a, it's a really eye-opening, I think, for lots of folks on campus, um, but really useful piece of research. And I think it's inc it's incredible and amazing that it was done by undergraduate students. I think for a lot of undergrads, they don't get a chance to do really um, primary kinds of research, right? So here's an example when you actually looked at what was going on around you on campus and were able to do research about how to sort of address these issues, which I think is just an amazing opportunity. Although, as you say, probably really draining and hard to do. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about some of the, the major results of, of the research you did, the major themes you found? Yeah, so um, so the the study that we did, we uh, interviewed um, or collected uh, data from approximately 177 um, surveyors um, and interviews as a collective. Um, so these were uh, folks that were across all campuses at Laurier. Um, and most of that population were students. Um, and there was a small number of faculty and staff members um, and all folks uh, identified as racialized. Um, the small number of staff and faculty is actually like a true reflection of um, uh, the lack of uh, staff and faculty that are racialized on campus. Um, and some of the major themes um, that we found was a profound amount of street harassment, um, stereotyping, tokenism, uh, different forms of systemic racism, racial profiling, and cultural insensitivity. Um, and those different sections, we go into detail um, in the study. Um, but uh, th through, through those experiences, I think um, the most important part was that students were experiencing racism um, in the classroom not, and on their way to class. Um, and this includes different interactions with university professors, uh, with other students, um, 
violent lectures that um, promote a lot of racial stereotyping, uh, a lot of targeting of racialized students. Um, these were all collectively different experiences that students um, were sharing with us of their of their experience, and also faculty um, experiencing uh, racial violence from uh, from their from their students. Um, so the six key areas our report provides calls to actions for are um, residents, faculty, student government, athletics, and administration. And a lot of the calls to actions start with administrations, administration stepping up and doing the work. Um, and eventually this would trickle down to the other departments that we noted. So they would do the work and then eventually that would impact the um, athletics and student government as well as uh, residents and residents hiring. It is important to note that current and future Black, Indigenous, and racialized student staff and faculty deserve better than the cost actions that we stated at the time. Um, again, this work falls on the administration and we are, we've, we've demanded that they step up many, many, many times now. Um, so we're just hoping that they do. Do you see the project in a different light? Um, and given that you did this um, a couple of years ago now, I think, um, but certainly given the past seven, eight months of sort of, uh, I don't know what to call it, like a resurgence of, of interest among white folks, I guess, in sort, mm -hmm. of, in sort of fighting racism across Canada and North America. So do, do, you, do you see the, the report differently than you did before? Like, do you think it's being um, taken up in a different way than it was before? Yeah, I feel that people are really interested in racism mm -hmm. as a, I don't know, as kind of um, as something to take up. It's it's actually a really interesting experience um, because a lot of the things that we were seeing before, we actually received a lot of resistance from this report up until probably this summer. Like there was so many people um, in online comments uh, with different articles that um, we were a part of that really like interrogated us um, mm -hmm. in, in public spaces. Uh, this included many academic professors, um, you know, saying that, you know, this research is not um, valid and, um, you know, how do you, how do you know someone's experience is racism? And, and a lot of these like very anti-racialized comments that try to um, demise what uh, a racialized person uh, is saying when they say they experience racism, um, like ex telling someone to prove it or to show me show, you know, whatever the white world, um, you know, explain it in a way so that we understand so that we can validate that that's true. Um, so th those were kind of the encounters that we're having um, with the um, emergence of, of protests with anti-black violence um, that has happened um, this summer, specifically with the protest um, and, and social media being a huge part of it. Um, there, there has been a huge shift in, um, I would say, yes, I would say globally, um, specifically in the Laurier culture. Um, I would say folks are a lot more open to listening, but I would um detract or kind of uh walk back when i say that people are 
super supportive. Um, there's different types of support, I believe. And um, I think that a lot of social media interest, um, it can only go so far. Mm-hmm. And also trying to see the genuine interests versus, um, you know, this is a popular thing now and I need to be a part of it. It's kind of confusing. Honestly, it feels like, um, and, you know, Aska, you can talk about this too. Like, I feel like I'm being gaslit by Mm -hmm. the the world. Like we are saying the exact same things we said before. And now there's almost this like overabundance of support, which feels very inauthentic um, because we were so harshly, um, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't say like not only criticized um, because, you know, when you when you publish research, you you know, critique is going to be there. Um, but I think the extent of uh, a, like Laurier professors, the pushback that we got as undergraduate researchers, um, you know, now in graduate school, I see that that was like bullying. <laughs> that was like straight up. um uh, racist uh, bullying um, that was super public and the, the lack of, I think, um, attention that uh, people had towards that, um, I think it, it wouldn't have happened in, you know, today. It wouldn't have happened today because of the emergence of the protests in the summer. Um, but it, it, it's, it seems kind of tricky on where we see, you know, authentic forms of activism. And if folks are really dedicated to, to racial justice as, you know, put in statements and, and other types of forms. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about this question, I just, Remember how difficult it was this summer uh, writing the open letter with Paige and Joey because we have not been on campus since 2018. Um, so in like some ways, we are happy that this resurfaced and that this, these conversations are happening. But we graduated, we are doing different things and constantly being told to be the spokespeople or spokesperson of a research, or of a re- research report that we did when we were in our undergrad back in 2017, 2018. It's just like there, in some ways, we were out of touch with a lot of the Laurier community and the Laurier culture. Um, there were a lot of gaps in uh, things that we were trying to fill. Um, and although it was difficult, uh, we like it, it is meaningful work and it is it has been uh, nice to do. And I feel like a lot of the bridges that we're trying to um, uh, just cross at the moment is finding people on campus that can do this work and that can continue this type of work because again we we're doing different things and uh, constantly being pushed back into the Laurier community where we are we're far like we're out of touch with it and like Paige said a lot of the experiences that we had were not positive and this overwhelming amount of positive and like authentic support that people are giving us it doesn't feel genuine because it never we never had it to begin with and people only want to listen now because it's a thing that we did and it's existed and it's it's nice but it's like okay I need you to give that energy to the people the racialized students that are on campus right now the racialized staff and faculty that need the help and the the love and the care that you're giving us right I mean that makes sense and, and I suspect that you know it, it it you probably have to wait and see whether these as you say expressions of interest are genuine or sort of 
just uh, popular right now. And that probably comes with, you know, where does the money show up? Do you, do you see more supports? Do you see more hiring of, of black indigenous folks or mm. do you not? Does it go away? Right. But um, I think, I think that's so interesting to hear. And I, I mean, certainly from my own part, really thank you for doing this work because I think it's, it's been really eye opening for a lot of us. And it's really, it's, it's, it's helpful to have a, a a piece of research to sort of start with as we sort of make this roadmap for the future and, and try to make things better. So I, I mean, I, I really thank you for the work and I can only imagine how difficult it must have been at the time. Before we end today, I wanted to leave some time to talk about Joey, who you've mentioned already. Um, Joey Lee was one of your co-authors who unexpectedly passed away earlier this fall. Um, I didn't get a chance to meet her myself, but I've heard so many great things about her. So I was wondering if you could um, tell us about Joey for those of us who didn't get a chance to meet her. Um, yes. Uh, so Joey is a very, very, very close friend of both Paige and I. Um, and she was a fundamental part of this project. And although she isn't here with us, uh, her passion and her love for social justice and activism work lives on through this report. And that's also why Paige and I hold this report very close to our heart, because it is the last big thing that we did together. Um, before her passing, she loved running our Being Raced Instagram page. And if you read the post and the captions and um, everything that was happening on that Instagram page that is open and uh, live still, um, it captures her spirit really well. She was unap unapologetically herself. And at the root of her activism was the desire for people to be cared for and loved. And when I think about Joy, I think about these things and I think about the warm feelings I get. Um, when I think back to our experiences together, uh, she always reminded Paige and I that love was abundant and existed around us. And I honestly could not be more grateful um, to, get, to have had the opportunity to learn from her and with her uh, from all the years that we spent together. Yeah, um, Joey was um, our great, great friend. Um, and uh, really, like when we talk about racism, when we talk about, you know, experiencing and disclosing to each other, I cannot emphasize how much um, me, Aska and Joey, our relationship was really uh, a center of wellness for all three of us. It was a, a space of survival. And um yeah, I think uh, for Aska and I as well, it's like really difficult to continue to do this work um, without um, Joey, um, since she was so much of the heart and the spirit of this work. Um, and a lot of the times, um, you know, sometimes we're asked questions um, that and, and sometimes we have encounters um, where we're like, you know, this is exactly you know, what Joey would take care of. This is exactly, you know, Joey would know what to do in terms of uh, responding to um, uh, certain kinds of violence. And uh, this was, this was kind of the dynamic and the relationship that we did have where, um, uh, you know, you know, when people of color get together, it's, we, we you, you learn different things. You learn how to survive with each other. And, um, you know, Aska and I, we continue to survive with each other, um, but we deeply miss our friend and uh, we love her. I'm really sorry for her loss. She sounds like a, a really important 
wonderful person. I'm I'm really sorry I didn't get a chance to meet her, but I think as you say, she leaves a really powerful legacy behind this report. And I think you two do the same thing. So thank you for joining us today to talk about it. Thank you for doing this work back then. Thank you for continuing to come back into this work all these years later. Um, thank you for building the foundation for the rest of us to sort of pick up where you left off and hopefully make some real change. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. You can find a link to the Being Raced report and the open letters the authors wrote on our website. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. We hope it's helped you feel a little more connected to the Laurier Brantford community. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends and colleagues. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Worried about missing an episode? Sign up for our newsletter. You can find the link on Twitter and Facebook at OneMarketLB. One Market was created and produced by Bruce Gillespie and Tara Brookfield. Music by Scott Holmes. Graphics by Melissa Weaver. Our research assistant and intern is Serena Austin. Thanks for listening. Keep in touch.